history of breaking kayfabe with Bowdrin and or Barry. I threw a little and or in there for you, Barry. So this episode, very happy because for the first time in probably three and a half weeks, yes, the three best friends that you didn't know you have, back together like a great band, Barry Rose, Luke Hippelman, and I, we survived through the holiday season, various and sundries, up and downs in our lives. Guys, it's great to be back with you both. It is great, too. We uh, we missed. We, we, we should say big thank you to Mike Sempervivi, who uh, stepped in, helped us out with a little bit of the producing duties, did a great job. Real great guy. Uh, but Lou is like a brother to us. So Lou is part of our family, what we do here. So it is great. And, uh, you know, we did so much recording, Jeff. Prior to the the Christmas and holiday break, that K-fabe that brother K fave oh, that yeah, we yeah, yeah, ahead I time. didn't say that. I didn't say that. And uh, but the fact when we got a chance to actually record, it felt like being home again. Four and a half years, never missed an episode. We all talked to each other, if not on a daily basis, then a few times per week. So really felt good to be all back together. We are the freebirds of the podcasting world, Jeff. Would that be correct? Well, that all depends. Am I, uh, am I buddy, Bam Bam, or P.S.? Which one am I? <laughs> <laughs> so on this fine edition of uh, your favorite podcast, I will tell you that uh, Barry and I are going to break a little kayfabe on what we've seen so far because neither one of us have completed the entire season of Cobra Guy, but it's what? back. We're going to talk a little bit about that. We are going to be discussing, among other things, Recent events happening at the Bowdrin household. Uh-oh. Yeah, you're going to love this one. It's just a crazy story. So uh, besides that, before we get into and Sweet Lou's going to join us here in a minute because he's going to tell us uh, about what he's been doing recently and why he missed our recent Patreon episode. There's a, a, a legitimate reason. Let's talk about Matt Crowder. Now, folks, I got to tell you. Let me tell you what happened. I get a gift. I had ordered. I had ordered a gift for my wife, and it was like through Amazon or something like that, where it's going to be delivered. And I ordered it, and the next day a package shows up on our doorstep. And I, uh, my wife usually gives me a heads up and says, "Oh, by the way, uh, we're going to get a package on such and such a day. Uh, you know, be on the lookout for it." And she had not given me a heads up, so I get this package, and I'm looking at the return address. And I'm like, eh, "This doesn't, you know." Doesn't say, uh, you know, it's from Walmart or Target or uh, someplace else or from Amazon. I'm like, what the heck is this? And so I text my wife and I go, there's something being delivered you didn't tell me about today? And she goes, no. And I had ordered something for her, but I thought, wow, this is a really quick turnaround on what uh, I had ordered for her. I opened the package up and it was a uh, it was a gift from Matt Crowder, who's one of our listeners. And, uh, you know. He had uh, sent me a, a little note via Facebook Messenger eh, maybe a week or two before and said, oh, yeah, be on the lookout for something. And I'll be honest with you, I kind of forgot about his message. And what I was thinking, when I had cancer, I had some very nice people that sent stuff my way. And I've mentioned it before. I got some caps. Uh, a few people sent me DVDs uh, to while away the day while I was doing my chemo and all that kind of stuff. So I figured when Matt said that, oh, somebody's going to send me a, a, another cap. Well, this is not a cap. I'll just say that, Barry. Uh, Matt sent me a, a six by, uh, or I'm sorry, 16 by 20 print of Venerable Metropolitan Stadium in Bloomington, Minnesota, one-time home of the Minnesota Vikings, uh, whose season, by the way, uh, at the time this comes out, will thankfully be over, and maybe we'll have a new coach, too. 
But anyway, uh, it was a, a beautiful, beautiful print framed. And uh, I have a very similar uh, print like that uh, that I'm looking at right now in our dining room of Notre Dame Stadium. And I know how much it costs to, uh, to get that print and to frame it. So I can't even begin to describe how appreciative I am of Matt and his incredible generosity in sending me this. Matt Barry, just a really, really good guy. He is. So I should say, Matt has, uh, Matt's a guy that'll reach out to me every few months. And Matt and I, he takes, so this is what I like about Matt because his gifts are always stylized and personalized to the individual. He knows how you are when it comes to Minnesota Vikings, Notre Dame, et cetera. So he's going to do that. So I've gotten a couple of gifts from Matt as well. I got a gift, uh, I believe it was over, it's since I've moved into this apartment and it might've been based off of when I announced that I was uh, separated and then divorced. So Matt sent me a throw rug for my new apartment and the throw rug, Jeff, was a big Lebowski throw rug. Nice. All the characters on it. And, you know, you get this and, and I, you know, let's be honest. I fucking love the big Lebowski. To me, it's almost a way of life. And I, I look at this every day and I sent Matt a photo after he had sent me this. And Ozzy immediately took to this and then stayed on it. Like, didn't, you know, Ozzy just loved it. I got a gift from Matt uh, for, for Christmas as well. So what does Matt do? It's diehard related. It mm. is a, which is the coolest thing. Yeah, it no, is very a, nice. It's a wooden, I guess, diorama of Nakatomi Plaza. And then if in the center of it is Hans Gruber and he's falling down every level, it moves where you can actually push it down. That's so it's awesome. super cool. But Matt, as Jeff said, we are both so appreciative. Uh, you know, th- th- we'd never expect these gifts, but boy, do we love them. But we're super appreciative. Keep it up, brother. Good guy. I got a Christmas card from Matt, too. And as I told yes, him, so did I. very nice. And, and as I told him, Jeff, and we can say it publicly, another brother shipper who is married up. We yeah. it's as we see it, it, it seems like pretty yes. much 99 percent of us have. <laughs> It is. So. It's incredible. They all, all of you guys, you all seem to marry up. Congratulations. You're all doing something right. So I just have one question and then I want to show the, uh, the throw rug that you said Ozzy has commandeered that has uh, the big Lebowski characters. When you ask Ozzy to move off the throw rug, does he in fact look at you and say, shut the fuck up, Donnie? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. It, what, what'll happen is he'll go on the rug and then I'll be like, not on the rug, man. Not yeah. on the rug, but yeah, it is. <laughs> it, it is it great. It pulls it's, the room together, you know. It so. really does pull the room together. But this is one of the coolest things, and I've said this for a while. When I move out of this apartment, I go to my next destination. My goal wasn't to be to take much with me. I wasn't gonna. I was gonna sell the furniture, sell a lot of the stuff that I have. Try not to move with a lot. This rug, Jeff, is gonna be wrapped up coming in my car with me. I fucking love it. And I'm guessing the uh, the diorama from uh, from Diver. Oh Falls yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I neglected to mention, Barry, what our match of the week is this oh. week. So little story behind this, uh, too. As we're going through, uh, you know, back in the the early days of Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry, we did our top 100, uh, the, the article that I wrote for the Wrestling Observer Yearbook in 1989 about the top 100 matches of the 1980s. There are a few needles to say that I did not get a chance to cover with Barry. And the reason is, quite frankly, 
I got them on videotape from various sources that I do not uh, have access to anymore. So some of the matches are either lost in time or they're out there uh, where I can't uh, get them. Uh, Anyone wants to reach out to me and find out which ones I'm looking for. (laughs) Anyway, so there I am. I'm happening upon a a match that I was looking for. I'm doing a Google search or a YouTube search, something like that. I come across one of my holy grails, uh, one of my matches that we've never covered because I was unable to find until about literally two weeks ago. The match I'm referring to is the match between Bull Nagano and Condor Saito versus Dump Masamoto. And here's where it gets fun, Barry. Yasuko Ishiguro. Ask me about Yasuko Ishiguro, Barry. So, Jeff, what do you know about? I know absolutely nothing because literally this is a woman who I've never seen. And, you know, this is not like a, a, a lady that was perhaps like in the undercard and eventually worked her way up. I cannot find anything about this woman except for this one off match. Now, let me read to you very quickly the commentary that I offered on this match in the 1989 Observer Yearbook. Quote, what a, by the way, October 1986, what a brawl Chigusa Nagoya attacks Dump before the match even starts to gain revenge for Dump attacking Chigusa earlier during a concert, which set up their hair versus hair match a month later. When the match starts, Bull and Condor, who are normally Dump's allies, attack her like a shark going after a wounded animal. Boy, this son of a bitch can write Kenny Berry. Like a shark. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, that was me. Wounded animal and dump is in the rare position of being the baby face. Numchucks, gasoline cans, chains, scissors, you name it. This match has a little bit of everything. So Barry and I will be talking about this match from my top 100 of the 80s. But before we get to that match and some other stuff, sweet man, please join the show at this time. Because we need to talk to Lou about what he's been up to. Oh, boy. The last week or so. Lou, first of all, brother, how you doing? Happy New Year. Oh, and Happy New Year to both of you and to the brother shippers at large. Thank you. So, Lou, just to uh, clear this up for the uh, the good folks, uh, out of commission, as it were, in your role as a producer for the Arcadian Network, Arcadian Vanguard Network, excuse me, uh, so we had to do some rescheduling. Barry mentioning um, Mike uh, Sempervivi that uh, helped us out because Lou was out of commission. So, Lou, the microphone is yours. Tell the good folks what you have been doing. Yes. And uh, at the top, I would like to thank the mighty Semp as well for jumping in and doing a yeoman's job. Absolutely. Quite frankly, we considered replacing you, but eh, we just changed our mind. Well. I know I work cheaper, so I, I have no worries about that. And and it's worth giving another uh, brief shout out to Mike's uh, Mid Atlantic Championship podcast with he and Roman Gomez. Absolutely. So I can tell you, I'm sure most of you who celebrate Christmas received better presents than I did. And, uh, for the 12 days of Christmas, for me, it was 12 jurors uh, jurying. <laughs> so, Jury duty during the holiday season is a fun road to hoe there, Lou. Yeah, I mean, I tried to look at the bright side of it. It was, you know, more parking near the courthouse, fewer lines uh, at the nearby establishments for lunchtime, uh, stuff like that. 
But this goes back to I was originally summoned for jury duty in October. And uh, the brains of the outfit, Mrs. Kippelman, said to me, why don't you defer until the week of Christmas? Because, you know, what cases are going to be adjudicated that week? It's going to be a skeleton crew. Smart thinking, smart thinking. Yeah, exactly. And then I called in the Friday before that, December 20th, to see if I was indeed summoned, and it had come to pass. So that was that. I went in there, and uh, it was just uh, a process of going in and waiting in a room with about one to 200 uh, fellow San Francisco citizens and them saying, yes, we are going to seat jurors for a criminal trial. Then they said, oh, come on back in a week. So there we go. December 27th, I had to come back. And then it was just for, you know, any of the listeners here who've who've gotten summoned for jury duty and who had the integrity and or uh, lack of cunning to kind of go, you know, sit through the process of jury selection, it got whittled down. And at a certain point during what they call voir dire, which is the narrowing down of people in the jury pool, it got down to about 24 people, 12 jurors in the box. I was number 18, so at that point, I was a potential alternate juror. And then other people were able to weasel their way out of uh, duty. That's a that's a very good way of putting it, Lou. Uh, that's yeah. when you really start showing your colors. Uh, uh, I couldn't possibly uh, make a day out of my week to serve on jury duty, please. Continue. Right, exactly. When the judge and the attorneys give you the bare outline of the case and saying, well, this is an assault case. Yeah, people raising their hands and saying, well, you know, 12 years ago, I was mugged. So I don't think I could possibly be impartial. Sure. So it's like, okay, well, happy new year. Take a walk. Not me though. Not Mr. Integrity here. <laughs> That's what we call you, Lou, Mr. Integrity. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, and so after more narrowing down and of course, both attorneys, you know, using their dispensations to, to boot people off the jury, for whatever reason, I like Casey Kasem would say, I uh, went straight up the charts from number 18 to number six. And before I knew it, I was standing up, raising my right hand, and there went the rest of my year. Okay, so 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 before we go on, a, a couple of questions as a former uh, <laughs> courthouse employee who also did his uh, share of time in the jury room. Uh, yes. Helping with the process and stuff like that. And the process that Lou was referring to, the, the voir dire process. We used to be a judge in the old Broward County Courthouse. We used to say, uh, voir dire, voir dire, voir dire. Uh, it's just <laughs> where they, they, they try to, uh, to figure out who would be the best person to serve on the jury. And they like to get people, quite frankly, that uh, will have an open mind, that don't know anything about uh, a process. As Lou said, if you're on an assault case, you don't want somebody that's been mugged. If you're on a DUI case, you don't some, want somebody that's been hit by a drunk driver because they may have a, a skewed opinion of, a, of DUI drivers, that sort of thing. Uh, so uh, 
it's a tough process. And, and you do have your people that, as Lou said, will try to weasel their way out of it. It's not an easy process. And quite frankly, when I was uh, first told that Lou had jury service, my thought was, how the hell did Lou ever get picked? He's way too intelligent to get to, on jury service. Oh, because God. generally speaking, they, they don't want somebody that has a uh, modicum of intelligence because they want somebody who's like uh, basically that they're going to be able, whether I hate to put it this way, whether they're from the state, the prosecutor or the defense, they're going to want somebody that sees it from their point of view. So you want somebody that's basically, you know, my dad went through his whole life wanting to get picked on jury duty. He was far too intelligent to get picked on jury duty. So, Lou, yeah. tell us, you, you you mentioned it was an assault case. Give us some uh, just some basic details of what we're talking about here. I will. And in this case, what I'm going to tell you, it has a long trail behind it timeline-wise. And when you hear elder abuse, I'm going to assume, like it did for me, that puts in my mind a situation of a caregiver or an adult child of an elder who's accused of being abusive. Sure. This case was not that. Most any felony trial, the backstory is going to be fairly tragic. This, though, had almost like Greek tragedy written all over it. The defendant was for about 15 years a firefighter for the San Francisco Fire Department. On top of that, he was the primary caregiver for his mother, who is schizophrenic. And I mean, the way it plays out, and this plays out in total over about 18 years or so, is that on the job, in the line of duty, he was exposed to HIV. And about three years after the exposure, he he was sick. He didn't know what was happening. And when he got it checked out, the diagnosis came back as he did have HIV. Oh. From there, he wanted to remain being a firefighter. And of course, you know, I guess accommodations were made because obviously in a city like San Francisco, which was since the beginning discovery of HIV AIDS, has been one of the big cities to really be affected by it. You would think they'd have some protocols. By now, after four decades, they would have some really ironclad guidelines in place for people, first responders who happen to have HIV AIDS, you know, what to do, the boundaries of their duties, and how to protect them and to protect their colleagues. So since that point in 06, he kind of took the brunt of abuse, of hectoring, of, to use the parlance, mean-spirited ribs. His colleagues in the firehouse did not want him to cook. They pretty much, you know, he was essentially a pariah. And his superiors up the chain were at best seemingly indifferent to this treatment. So over that period of time, let's go forward to 2014. And he was trying to wind his way through the bureaucracy, through the union, through the city's bureaucracy to 
get the process going of disability, of workers' compensation, eventually with an end game to getting an early retirement and pursuant pension. So in 2014, he had a few sessions with a clinical psychologist. And from that, there came the diagnosis that uh, this firefighter had certain uh, mental disorders, perhaps not as severe as the schizophrenia that his mother was suffering from, but different sort of mood disorders, personality disorders. Lou, can I interrupt? Can I just ask you a question? Now, was this something that was found to have been uh, something he already had? Was it exacerbated by the HIV diagnosis or, or what exactly? Um, or did they not get into that? Well, they, they really did not get into that. Okay. But, you know, just kind of in the broad contours of the background before the incident, that came up. And so after the few visits with the psychologist in 2014, there was the expectation that the psychologist was supposed to fill out forms, paperwork to help move the process along of uh, the firefighter getting compensation, getting workers' comp or, or retirement. And, you know, that was part of the process. And so from what we were told, I don't know the particulars, five years had passed. And at that point, the firefighter had gone on to disability, was not back on the job as a firefighter. And that was a job that had paid him an annual salary of $120,000 a year. So to make ends meet, he had to do gig work as a security guard for $15 an hour. So if you put yourself in his shoes having to be the the primary caregiver for a parent with schizophrenia and they both shared the apartment. And so he was the breadwinner and he was the caregiver and to go from such a salary to have it, you know, shoot down to that really paltry figure. Of course, those are major stressors. And so one particular day in November, 2019, he decided to walk in to the office of his psychologist for the first time in five years and decided to confront him and say, hello, what happened to the paperwork that was supposed to go through? Why didn't you send the paperwork to my lawyer in the last five years? The psychologist said, what lawyer? And then from there, the fireman, in his words, popped the psychologist hit him. And then there was an ensuing sort of struggle wherein the firefighter put his hands on the psychologist. And from the testimony, from what I could tell, it was a like a front face lock. And so, I mean, the struggle itself, the duration of that was probably about a minute or less until another psychologist who shared office space came in along with his patient and they kind of verbally intervened and said, what are you doing? Stop. Wherein uh, the firefighter, you know, let go and promptly left the office. And then the next day was arrested. And so then from, from there, the judge in the arraignment deemed a, a severe potential crime, a severe allegation 
this firefighter at the age of 45 years old at the time who had a spotless record, no arrest, not even a ticket for jaywalking. It was deemed to be a no bail offense. So he was put in county jail with no possibility of bail. And that was November 2019. And of course, we know what happened right after that. Yeah. So whatever expedience that could be expected of holding a jury trial went out the window so that for all this time, for a little over two years, he's been cooling his heels in the San Francisco city and county jail. His mother, I don't know if there's anybody else who has been able to take care of her, but obviously that puts a parent in a precarious situation. And of course, as a juror, I didn't know any of this backstory. Well, well, that particular backstory until after the end of the trial. So, so, okay. So let's just, uh, just so we can move along. So the gentleman is brought to trial. Yeah. Uh, How many days did the trial go? Let's see. Yeah. It was about a couple of days of voir dire. And we started, I think, in earnest around the 28th, 29th. Okay. Uh, how many witnesses, do you, if you recall, right off the top of your head? Four witnesses. The psychologist himself, the couple of the arresting officers from SFPD, and a medical doctor who I, I think was involved in the case, too. That part of the trial was fairly speedy. And then we got the charges. And we deliberated for uh, the better part of about two days. In deliberations, the crux of the of our debates was about whether the district attorney's office provided, you know, the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Of course. That yeah. the firemen committed elder abuse. And by definition, that he reasonably knew or should have known that the psychologist at the time of the assault was 68 years old. So, okay. So uh, let me just uh, ask you here. So when you first go in, do you take an initial vote? We did. And what was the initial, what was the split on the initial vote? If you remember, I think we started, you know, kind of started in almost immediately on count two, which was the major elder abuse charge. And then it was a debate on, because we were stuck on certain turns of phrases in the charges. Elder abuse, it got to be a fairly clearly cut decision unanimously that really there should not have been a reasonable expectation that the defendant would have known that the psychologist was over 65 years old. So that made it pretty clear that we voted for acquittal on anything involving elder abuse, which was one felony charge and a couple of lesser charges, misdemeanors. Gotcha. From there, it was fairly quickly that we were unanimous in convicting him on simple battery. Which is a misdemeanor. That's right. Okay. And then we went back to count one, which was a felony charge of assault likely to produce great bodily injury. And so this was where it was a fairly even sort of a debate six to six over, was it throwing the punch and putting 
putting the doctor in a front face lock. This is where we had to tussle around the legal wording of the criteria here, which was, was the application of force, even if it didn't injure the victim or injure the victim greatly, did it have the likelihood of producing great bodily injury? And that was like, okay, what's great bodily injury? And then you go back, you go further on in the description, great bodily injury is only defined as an injury that would be considered greater than minor to moderate injury. So what was it? Was that based on uh, a punch that he threw or the restraining method that he used with the front face lock? That sort of thing? It was all of that in total. Okay. And so... You kind of base it, you know, we were weighing it on the whole of the engagement, which was as it went, uh, the fireman popped the psychologist, the psychologist reeled back and was stunned. And then he took off his glasses and put them on his desk. And then he balled up his hands into fists, put his forearms up over his, his face and his upper body. And the psychologist said that he was kind of uh, trying to put himself in a guard or into a defensive pose to prepare for whatever else the fireman was going to do to him. The fireman said that, and the defense tried to assert that by assuming that pose, that it was sort of a put your dukes up I'm going to engage in mutual combat with you, uh, sort of pose. And then the fireman said that the doctor rushed him, which, you know, of course, that's open to interpretation and debate. And then the the front face lock was applied and the doctor said that that he had sort of a tunnel vision, sort of the sort of the feeling that you were losing consciousness, though he never did during the encounter. So was was the belief that the uh, the front face lock was done, uh, I, I guess, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, like, did he do it to try to hurt the doctor or just kind of hold on to him and so that the doctor couldn't do anything uh, back at him? Yeah. And I mean, that was the big question, the, the point of contention for sure amongst okay. the jurors. Was it just a restraint? The fireman, because he initiated it. It could not legally be construed as self-defense, but was it restraint or was it a furthering of aggression meant to put the doctor out? Sure. Which then could have a loss of consciousness means a loss of physical control. And then if the doctor drops in an unprotected position, does he hit his head? You know, does he break his neck? Yeah, it's it's like uh, the old Geraldo Rivera case, uh, which the claim was always that he fell back, hit his head, and he was not protected. So anyway, Lou, ultimately, what was the decision that the juror reached, uh, jury reached on the last count? So after a lot of spirited debate and, you know, <laughs> jury dynamics, we had two people who were taking up a lot of oxygen in the jury room. And really, really being forceful and trying to drive the discussion. And <laughs> that was, uh, well, in my personal opinion, kind of annoying. But eventually, we all came to the realization that we were deadlocked. 
and that no further discussion would move move forward to a unanimous verdict. So then I guess I guess the inevitable question, uh, just uh, based on my years at the courthouse, did the judge, in fact, read you what they call the Allen charge? I'm I'm familiar with that. Okay, well, no, the Allen charge is when a jury uh, sends a note out to the judge saying that they are deadlocked, hopelessly. The judge will come out and they will read them a charge that is referred to as the Allen charge, where the judge basically says, I want you to go back in the jury room. I want each of you to state what is the strong part of your case as far as, you know, like, okay, this is the thing I really believe in the most. Mm -hmm. And also, uh, this is the point that I think maybe I'm not so sure about, like have each one of the jurors do that. And then after that, you vote again. And if it's still deadlocked, then the judge usually will send you home. So apparently they didn't do that, though. Right. Essentially, what we did was to write the note to the judge saying, we have come to unanimous verdicts on these particular charges. And on count one, after extensive deliberation, we are deadlocked. And so not long after we had sent that note, the judge summoned us to the courtroom where the verdicts were delivered. And then on the count we were deadlocked, it went through the, you know, the fairly routine of the judge asking the foreperson, are you hopelessly deadlocked, hopelessly deadlocked and the answer in the affirmative. And then what was without saying how many voted for guilt and how many voted for acquittal, what was the count? And it was six to six. And so from there, the judge rendered that it was a mistrial on that particular count. All right. So uh, do you know, does the guy have to remain in custody or was he released or you don't know? I do not know. What I do know is that in terms of the maximum sentence on the one misdemeanor charge that we convicted for. Yeah, he's already served his time. And then some. I yeah. mean, it could by a factor of uh, probably I, a I, few I, times over. Yeah, I want to say it's it's it probably at the most a one year uh, if you're adjudicated guilty and convicted. Uh, the most you could face is one year in jail. And he's uh, obviously, based on what you've told us, has been convicted. Hey, uh, or has uh, served his time, Lou. We certainly appreciate you uh, offering your insight and to the jury system in uh, the Bay Area. And uh, Barry, wow, fun stuff. And, and I will say, uh, breaking kayfabe to all our listeners, Mr. Rose, don't you have some jury duty coming up, my man? Yeah, so I've been a little quiet during this segment because I was taking copious amounts of notes. <laughs> as, as Lou says, I have integrity. I'm going, I've got no fucking integrity. I need to get out of here. Barry's going to mention huh. his affiliation with the Nazi party when he exactly. gets there. Exactly. Right. I'm going to go in there. I'm, whatever it is, is I can get out of this shit. I need to. So uh, I have, de- Lou and I talked off air, but I have deferred this is my third time, and apparently I can no longer defer. So I, uh, I just, yeah. Will, gotta... will you be discussing your IBS uh, with the uh, judge? <laughs> yes. That's first Joe Chris. irritable bowel syndrome. I couldn't possibly be. <laughs> Do you have a, a conscious and prevalent bias against Ethiopians and their food products? I do. Especially their yards. Their yards, and uh, yes, and if you're okay with me farting all throughout the courts, then I can go, but... Uh, Lou, that it sounds it. This is unbelievable. Will you be following 
it's a mistrial. It's right. So this right. Is, this means it's going to go to trial again. They can bring this to trial again, right? Well, that's up to the discretion of the DA's office. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's completely up to the district attorney whether or not they feel they they have a good enough case to proceed. I'm not sure based on what Lou told us if you know the other uh, the other charges, the other counts are now out. Or because the one charge was declared a mistrial, whether that's it. I have to think about that. I'll have to reach out to some attorneys that I know. But, uh, yeah. Another I just, question, I, Jeff, with this. can He can bring a criminal suit, though, right? Or a civil suit against the uh, against the firefighter, the, the psychologist. Oh, psychiatrist, no, of, right? of course. Yeah. No, he can. Lou, uh, do you I, know I, if that's I, taken place? I did ask the defense attorney, the public defender, about that. If there was anything in the system or in the planning. He was sort of unsure about that. Of course, the first priority was to adjudicate the uh, the criminal charges and, of course, to make sure, you know, to get him out of the county jail to make sure that uh, medically he is taken care of to, you know, help put him in as best health as possible. That's, yeah, I have, to, I have to tell you, uh, knowing nothing about the way uh, the legal process works in the Bay Area. That's just that, especially with COVID, that, that's just absolutely amazing for a charge like that. And for a scenario that you've described, that uh, this guy is in jail for over two years. That's just friggin' crazy to me, you know? That's right. And other jurors asked the defense attorney if they were presented an opportunity to plead out. And the public defender said that the DA was only interested in, uh, you know, getting a plea on the felony count. Sure, sure. So, of course, they said, you know, we'll take our chances in court and have this tried. I'm going to guess, based on the time of year that the jury trial took place, is this was not a, uh, a speedy trial because of the age of the case. But what may have happened is that the defense may have made a what they call a demand for a speedy trial, which when that happens, what the judge has to do is he has X amount of days to set the trial and do the trial. And if nothing else, get the jury sworn in before uh, what they call speedy trials attached, because if the judge basically sits there and goes, no, nah, nah, I don't feel like doing it, then they can uh, you know, make a demand for a, what they call a speedy discharge, at which point the case gets tossed out because the judge didn't get the case tried uh, quick enough. So, uh, yeah. Uh, and by the way, because I know that Jim Cornette uh, had some questions for Brian about it. <laughs> yes. For those unaware, because I spoke to Brian about this, no, you cannot just skip out on jury duty, okay? Uh, now, uh, will the sheriff's office show up guns ablazing looking for you because you decided not to go to jury service? No. But I can tell you in Broward County what they would do is if you did not show up for jury duty, just blew it off and said, I'm going somewhere else today, what they can do is they will send you a summons to appear in court. You show up in court and usually what happens is a judge says, well, here's your choices. Do you want me to uh, find you in contempt of court for your failure to appear? Or do you want to give me a date that you can serve on jury duty? And I would say a good 99.9% of the people will sit there and say, I'm happy to serve. When can I do it? Uh, you know, if you uh, say, uh, you know, go F yourself, judge, I don't want to uh, serve. Uh, perhaps there'll be a, a rather hefty monetary fee. Uh, I don't think they can put you in jail for that, but they can, uh, you know, give you some sort of civil fine, I would guess. Uh, so, yeah, there is uh, there is no just completely blowing it off and you don't show. And uh, Jeff, uh, that is that is written on the summons that I received. Of course. Yes. That if I do not attend, I would be held in contempt of court 
and subject up to a $500 fine. Yes, mm-hmm. I believe it's what they call civil contempt. Mm. So uh, it's not it's not a criminal contempt where you're facing jail time. So a uh, little uh, college of knowledge thrown at all the listeners there. Hey, Lou, we really appreciate you uh, sharing uh, the story with us. Appreciate you uh, doing your civic duty, your civic responsibility, even though I'm sure, as anyone can tell you, huge pain in the butt. But, you know, one thing I'll say, uh, and I don't know if Lou has this experience, is usually when people come down there and they serve, you know, if they don't get dragged into, I've told people before the story about our friend Joey Broussard, who got stuck on a case for over a year in Broward County. Uh, you know, but if you're, in, you know, one of these trials that, you know, goes a day or two afterwards, there's kind of a, a sense of, you know, I, I fulfilled my civic responsibility. Maybe uh, if you didn't serve in one of the military branches, you know, you feel like you've done your part for the community. And honestly, whether you convict or or acquit, it's, you know, it's, it goes on a case by case basis. Can I ask a dumber than usual question? <laughs> so, well, that's that's a pretty high bar for you, Barry. But go ahead. I, look, I'm striving. Or to low bar. I don't know which one. I'm striving to be the best I could be now with this question. So you mentioned Joey Broussard on uh, presiding and, and being a part of a case for a year. How does somebody survive? I see what they pay, what you get reimbursed. How do you survive for a year? Well, generally speaking, uh, with and, and we'd have to have Joey on person. I believe what happens is your uh, employer has to basically compensate you while you're serving. And uh, I believe in Joey's cases, I I don't mean to speak for him, but uh, I believe his employer was compensating him. And of course, uh, on the days when Joey was not in trial, he worked, he worked at a, uh, as a a manager of a restaurant, uh, not a server, Barry. (laughs) So, so maybe Joey, so maybe, (laughs) and, and so hypothetically, Joey would be off holidays and then Saturday and Sunday from court yes. that maybe he's doing double duties on the weekend. It oh, had to yeah. be just brutal, but oh, oh yeah, no, you know, Ugh. no question. And you know, again, that's one of the reasons why I sit there and say, you know, like God, you couldn't do something to get, you know, because I've told the story before uh, about someone that I knew who had jury duty, whose car got stolen like a week before his oh. jury service. Oh, man. And he was taking the bus downtown into Fort Lauderdale to uh, serve. And I'm like, dude, why didn't you tell him your car got stolen? That would have gotten you off the case. And he said to his credit, you know, I never served in the military. I feel like I wanted to do my part to serve the community by doing it, which I thought was very cool of him to do that. And, you know, he ended up getting stuck on a case that was like, I want to say about two or three weeks, you know, every day taking the bus downtown, you know? So anyway, Lou, once again, very proud of you for doing your civic duty, doing a little jury service. Uh, that poor guy, you know, two years in the in the county lockup for uh, for that. Uh, yeah, I, I really can't believe that. You know, maybe if the judge wanted to send him a message, you know, like after a month, maybe reconsider the whole motion for a bond and and no contact with the victim of any kind, that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, that's kind of crazy. So anyway, Barry, onward we go with uh, this uh, fine edition. Why don't we talk about our match of the week, Barry? You ready to do that? I have a sweet lose legal report, Jeff. We uh... yes, <laughs> a new segment here on Breaking yes. Fame. Exactly. Barry. <laughs> oh, so let's go to October of 1986. Once again, we're talking Bull Nakano, Condor Saito taking on Dump Masamoto and Yasuko Ishiguro. Now, let me just lay a little groundwork here on this match of the week. I believe what was going on was there was some sort of tournament, which was the reason why these two teams who usually were part of the same faction, if you will, 
were facing each other in a tag match. Now, what happened was earlier on in the card, Chigusa Nagoyo, the number one babyface for the promotion, was having a concert. Dump came after her during the concert, disrupted the concert, attacked Chigusa. And before this match started, Chigusa comes back out, attacks Dump. This was all done to set up a hair match that they would have like, eh, I want to say a month later or something like that. So, Barry, you had a chance to watch this match. Tell me what you thought of this match. I haven't said that in a while, Barry. Uh, like we used to in the old top 100 days. Tell the folks what you thought of this match, Barry. So it's it, it's much less of a match as opposed to a really longer angle. It's probably a 15-minute angle. Yeah, I didn't I, it's really not so much of a match. It's 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 a massive brawl, you know. So as Jeff said, and I think we should also address and you had mentioned this to me and Jeff, you would have been 100% correct. Check. Boy, I missed doing that. Possibly worst announcer in the history of Oh my god. Wrestling. This guy is Ed Whalen times 10 bad. Yeah, uh that's a, that's a standard that we haven't reached before Barry. That it, it really it really was unbelievable. I, I and I guess this aired on the Tempo Network years ago in looking at the icon that was on the screen, but he was clearly unprepared for professional yeah. wrestling. Uh, I, I mean, just I'm sorry, Barry, I'm interrupting. So yeah. just to make it clear, they had a English announcer or American announcer that was basically doing the voiceover while the ma- while the match or the angle, whatever you want to call it, was taking place. He was not familiar with any of the storylines, didn't understand. He he made a comment uh, when uh, I believe it was Chigusa grabbed the house mic and she said something obviously in Japanese, you know. I'm going to kick your butt, uh, da, 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 one of those kind of things. I'm gonna, yeah. No, so the guy has someone translating for him, oh. and then the guy, as as he's gotten the translation, says, oh, apparently Chigusa wants to kill yes. Dolph Masamoto. <laughs> <laughs> she actually wants to kill her. So, anyway, And what he can, says, actually, he goes, I don't know a lot of Japanese, but this I know. That's what he <laughs> says. And I'm sitting there going, so you don't know Japanese, but you know the word kill. That's interesting, first off. He's absolutely horrible. I, I'm assuming maybe he was an employee of Tempo that they just threw in to do the dubs and the voiceovers on the match. Much less of a match, but it is impressive. And uh, it's so th- this all takes place, as Jeff said, right after the Chigusa concert. And the concert's always interesting. And I remember seeing, I know she did concerts all the time. Uh, they would do all these concerts. I, it's hard for me, Jeff, to distinguish if she's good or bad. I don't. I don't know how that I works. T- I can tell you, she was massively popular. Uh, massively, because yes. w- when I first saw this, and and I saw the whole All Japan Women's uh, show live, I can tell you that the amount of merchandise that was moved regarding Chigusa the singer, as opposed to Chigusa the wrestler, was not incredibly different. I mean, you're talking. I'm trying to think of uh, a context I can put this in. And I think at the time I, uh, I've told people it would be like when Miley Cyrus was doing in boy, I think that may be the first time we ever talked about Miley Cyrus on this show when she was like in her Hannah Montana prime. Okay. If you combine that with like, Oh, like a, a Ronda Rousey, Britt Baker kind of character, you know, somebody that was huge over like, and literally she became a natural, uh, a national pop culture icon. Like p- 
people knew the name that weren't into, into wrestling at all. It was just crazy. Anyway, I'm, I'm yammering. Go ahead, Bear. No, and and you're you're right about that as well, too. And you think about the concerts that have taken place from professional wrestlers. And I'm not talking about a guy like Jericho that has transcended professional wrestling and actually has a career in music. Now, um, wait, wait till you see his hairdo uh, when you watch AEW tonight, by the way. That's, that's oh, something that bad. Yeah, he's done some hair coloring. That's all I'll say. Yeah. So, but it's, you know, in the old days, right? The Freebirds had concerts. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Dusty Rhodes, Dusty Rhodes, who had no musical talent whatsoever. <laughs> right, it's we true. Can't he would, take my yeah, he would, he would, he would put on these concerts, and he would always get the rub from like a David Allen Coe or somebody like that, somebody that was marginally or relatively popular. But a lot of these guys didn't have concerts yet. They were, you know, Michael Hayes had no musical talent. You know, like not even close. But they somehow fool themselves into thinking that. Chagusa does, I mean, again, I don't understand, but she appears to, to have some sort of talent, but the key with it, how over she is, because there are little girls, there are adults crying as she's, as she's singing and they're in the audience with that. So she gets attacked and then she goes absolutely berserk. Like this isn't just a, I'm going to get dump. She she's wielding this metal garbage can. And she's nailing everybody over the head with this thing. And she's completely berserk and out of control. And it, but it works. It absolutely works because you believe it. She's very passionate. She's freaking out. We talked about that. She's destroying everybody. And then what happens, they, they get into a brawl. Chagusa gets backstage. And then it is essentially a heel team. And I think you're right about the tournament, too. It's a heel team versus a heel team. But they really seem to go, it's bull going for, uh, for, for dumb. And the nunchucks, they get her wrapped up in the ropes and they're digging the nunchucks into her head. And the announcer is, you know, he, he's in his own way, he's quasi like, you know, he's like lethargic about it. He's like, oh yeah, look, they're, they're dragging and digging the nunchucks into her skull. No, but- and, and, and let me just say somebody that we've criticized before, somebody like David Crockett, would have been losing his mind. Yes, but you know? that's but this is the thing where that works, right? Like yeah. it works when you're. Yeah, of course. No, that was my point. Somebody yeah. like David Crockett calling this would have been fun. Yes, because it, it's almost like there's murder being uh, attempted here. It's like an attempted murder, and the guy's just casually just discussing it. <laughs> yeah, that should appear to be trying to murder her. Yes, that should be fine. Yeah, exactly. I got to tell you, the real key with this, Jeff, was the the jewelry commercial that aired. <laughs> If you, and I know that you did, because now you're saying it and you're laughing. So there is a jewelry commercial. So I'm assuming this was roughly the same time as that Santo Gold or <laughs> yes, whatever it was. Santo Gold, yes. This one is great because this one is the Jewelry of the Month Club. And so if you've never heard of Jewelry of the Month Club, you would pay in 1986, <laughs> 1995, and you would get 10 pieces of jewelry every month that, according to the announcer, Jeff, equals hundreds of dollars in value. So that's the key, in that's value. The key with that. So in value. So I'm wondering what all that means. And then I'm wondering, I don't think you could do that today. I think the attorney general would be right <laughs> on you for selling. But I, as cra- this is a fun because it really is. It's 15 or 20 minutes. It's all over the fucking board. It is a a hodgepodge uh, just of everything thrown in here. 
as well as these crazy commercials, this is a fun way to spend 20 minutes. That's what I would say. So tell me if you had a chance. Uh, I know uh, you said you didn't see this week's episode of AEW. Did you see Rampage from the other night with the, women, with the women's street fight? I did, yes. So that was crazy shit. Uh, now, comparatively speaking, I think the angle with the Japanese women was better and crazier. But I will give props. That was about the best stuff I've seen from American women in a long time. And I don't mean just the the blood. I mean the whole fucking spectacle of it, like that you had two women getting color, one apparently pretty badly, and they were doing, you know, they they brought in the barbed wire, they brought in the tables. I mean, it was pretty crazy, Barry. It it really was too. So you've got and you had we should also say too, like in in the Japanese match, you know, this is a real who's who of of professional wrestling talent, too. Uh, you know, nobody's ever going to say Chigusa, Dump, uh, you know, Asia Kong, Asia Kong, you know, Bison Bull. Kimura, Bull. Any of these women aren't Hall of Fame candidates, right? But when you're talking about AEW, you're talking about Anna Jay. I mean, you know, Anna Jay, very attractive. But nobody that you've ever said, wow, that's a four-star match. and you know, it's still new in her career. Ty Conti getting a lot of publicity. There's a lot of talent. Yes, she is banging Sammy Guevara. If you've seen the photos, allegedly. Um, oh no, it's not even allegedly. <laughs> there, there's photos of them now making out that he's posting onto Facebook. So yeah, the, the girlfriend that he had been like with for yeah. ten years, lived in the car with. Uh, she's apparently been thrown a, a throat she's aside. She's been thrown, and Ty Conti, Ty Conti is out. Uh, Ty Conti, a lot of talent. Penelope Ford, who some people have shit on, I think she's fantastic. I think, if anything, to me, she was, I think she's completely underappreciated and underrated as a worker. And the bunny, and the bunny, so the bunny was a big deal in Impact. Uh, I completely forget what her name was in, in Impact, but she was a really big deal. And then they brought her to AEW. And let's be honest, for the last three years, she kind of languished and she gets put into this program. These women, Jeff, they busted their fucking ass. They didn't have to do half of what they did to make this match good, and they did. That's pride in work. And as I was watching this show, and I think of all the people over the last 30 years that, you know, we've been watching wrestling and the old days of guaranteed contracts and guys would come out and sleepwalk through their matches because they were getting paid, these women fucking came out and laid it out and you said this was a really good match and i had no idea just how great this match was going to be massive recommendation and props to them for not just fucking mailing it in to collect a paycheck props for coming in and laying this out amazing match the, the, we're only, com AEW. the yes. only complaint i would have about the AEW match is the match itself, I really enjoyed. Incredible brawl, all kind of shit being in there. And, and, you know, I'm not one of these that, like, you know, let's put the thumbtacks out there. Let's do the take. Yeah, you know. No, just the opposite, I think, for you, aren't you? Yeah. You don't like it. Yeah. And, and so, no, it's just, to me, I, I love a good brawl, but sometimes it's overkill. But sure. the fact that they did this, the only complaint I would have was this was not like, wow, these women have been beating the shit out of each other for six months and now it's the end of the program and let's do this match. It, it just like, when did this program like become so heated that they're going to these links to, you know, to, to injure their opponents or to attack their opponent. That was the only complaint I had. 
Uh, you know, and quite frankly, I don't watch like the AEW After Dark and the YouTube AEW. I just watch, you know, Rampage and Dynamite. That's it. Right. So this is not like a program that I've seen built up over like six months or a year. And this is the blow off match to it. Uh, but other than that, it was incredibly entertaining. Let me get back to the uh, the match that we are originally reviewing here. So the beginning of the match, uh, after all the schmas with Chagusa and stuff like that, uh, or I should say uh, before the schmas. Dump coming to the ring, Barry, and she's got the kendo stick, okay? Yes. And she begins to waylay people that are around the ringside area. Reporters, cameramen, announcers, she attacks everybody. And the way they scatter, for those of you that are into real old-school Japanese stuff, is the way that the fans used to scatter when Bruiser Brody would start swinging the chain. And coming out to ringside, it was incredible. Like we've used this word lots of times, the spectacle of her chasing the people from ringside was crazy good. Oh, it was. It was. Uh, and you're right. That's exactly. Brody would come out to the immigrant song, and uh, it, you knew it. And the way that they wow, I got really excited. I just ripped the headset right off my head. They, uh, <laughs> the way that they would do that, too. They, I mean, Brody was hitting people with that chain. Sometimes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just, yeah, exactly. People are getting fucking. Well, no, and, and she's wailing on people. And when I say that, she's not just swinging the kendo stick. She's hitting them with it. You she's know, hitting them with it. Yeah. But you know and, what? It, it adds to it, right? Oh, it yeah. Adds, it adds, adds to, to the it. spectacle, of course. So then once they get in the ring and they're opened up and, you know, like, and they're brawling. I mean, like, they're. They're fucking carrying scissors into the ring. It's like a yes. deadly weapon. And they're going after each other with these scissors. And I'm going, this is fucking crazy that they're doing this. So they end up having the match. Okay. And as Barry said, the match itself is, is not like, uh, you know, it's not Flair Steamboat uh, from uh, Nashville, New Orleans, or Chicago here. Okay. This is just a, a, a crazy brawl that maybe goes 10 minutes. But the whole scenario goes about 20 minutes. But what happens that's great is you have these uh, these women that are usually in the same faction that are partners slash friends, whatever, and they've gone after each other, as I said before, like sharks smelling blood in the water, and then they have this face-off, and you know the announcer is like, oh, it appears that uh, Dump Masamoto and Bull Nakano are, are going to... Uh, uh, have something to say to him. Oh, they now appear to be shaking. I mean, he's so deliberate and just unemotional about it. But so they end up shaking hands. Okay. So it's over. They turn to the crowd. They raise each other's hands and then dump does the complete, you know, just falling back to the mat exhausted. And it's a perfect ending to the whole scenario bear. Yeah. And again, it's quick, right? Like we're not, you're not getting some sort of long, but it is. And it's, what I like about the entire thing, and so this is one thing that I've heard a lot of criticism about the WWE. If you ever, and Jeff, you don't watch it, but I, as far as our listeners that do, one of the things that the cameramen do is they shake the camera, which it, to me, it's the stupidest thing ever. And I think it's supposed to add to the realism of what's taking place, but they literally do this jerky camera movement. It's not the what's taking place in the ring. It's the cameraman fucking moving the camera and it's to add chaos, right? But it's fake. It's phony. It's forced. You can see it. This is as chaotic a situation. Oh, yeah, as you'll no, ever this isn't see. fake chaos. <laughs> no, this is all fucking chaos. It's all breaking down. You, 
You don't know what the fuck is even happening at some points because it's so wild. That's the way it should be. This was done perfectly, Jeff. Yeah, so we will post a link to this match. I will tell you, the match itself is not posted on YouTube. It's part of an hour-long program that someone posted. Uh, I will post the timestamps as to when you can start uh, if you don't want to watch the entire show. Uh, as Barry said, maybe 20 minutes max, the whole scenario, including the angle with Chagusa, uh, the the nunchucks, the scissors, the the garbage cans. Uh, holy crap, what an incredible brawl. So, Barry, a couple questions for you based on things that I've recently seen posted, uh, right. whether it's in our group or in the Florida uh, Archives uh, group. So you posted a list of bookers that had been in uh, CWF uh, over the years, correct? Correct. So one of the things I thought was interesting was when David Von Erich had his big heel run in 1982, started in late 81, I was always under the impression that Dory Funk Jr. was the booker when, in fact, you in your list said that Jerry Briscoe was the booker. So was Jerry Briscoe the one ultimately responsible for David Von Erich's heel run? No. So it was it was Dory. So I, I should say with that list, too. So Jerry was book. And this came from Jerry. I posted this list years ago and there's holes in the list, too. I should say if you look, there are gaps because I don't. Again, bookers, unless somebody tells you, you have no idea, right? So it, it isn't like I could search out that information. Jerry was either, I believe Jerry was right before Dory, and then Dory took over the book. And there may have even been some sort of collaboration. If I didn't have Dory on that list, that's my fault for not actually updating the list. But uh, Dory was the one responsible. And that was, uh, that's been verified from Dory himself. That Dory was when we talked with him, that Dory was the one who lobbied for David to come down to learn from Dory, which was the important thing, because if the plans were as numerous people have told us, Kevin Sullivan told us, uh, and look, it's always been the rumor that David was going to get the world title. They wanted him to learn how to be the NWA champion from a true tweener. So Harley Race was a heel, certainly in a couple of cities, he might have been a baby face. Dusty Rhodes actually was a heel in the Kansas City area, but a baby face everywhere else. But Dory Funk Jr. was legitimately a born and bred tweener. And I, they wanted they wanted David Von Erich to be like that. So it was David. Did I not have Dory on there at all? I, I, I just I remember seeing Jerry's name in 1982 and that kind of really threw me. And I was like, wait a minute. So another question, you know, we recently on our uh, most recent Patreon episode had Nick Patrick uh, the son of the legendary Jody Hamilton. And by God, Barry, we forgot to ask Nick about this. Can you tell us a story uh, involving Jody Hamilton, the original assassin, being Booker in CWF for one day? Yeah, so, well, uh, it's, it's going to be disappointing for you. So years ago, this would have been 2006, I interviewed uh, Jody Hamilton. And it was in uh, somebody had his phone number. They set me up with him and we had an interview and it wasn't it wasn't the greatest interview because Jody had not fully moved on from kayfabe. So there's parts of the interview that are very honest. And there's parts where he's kayfabing me. And I do remember I asked him one question and I said, so you were the booker and, and he was very when you dis you used inside terms, he was very he's old school, right? Sure. He was very conservative about how he would respond. But I said to him, I said, you were Booker in 1976 and 
you worked against Terry Funk in in Miami Beach, actually at the Miami Highlight Fronton. What was it like uh, where you were a heel and you're working against a heel world champion? And he he came forth with an answer, which I knew at this point what was going on. He came forth and he said, I was never intimidated by anyone that I got into the ring with. Didn't matter. So I knew he was working me. But he did tell me the story of uh, he was brought in to be the booker, worked one day, I believe. And I just never finished transcribing this interview that he got into a big disagreement with Eddie Graham regarding something. And he said he felt really strongly. And what I got from Jody is uh, in my conversation with him, not just that day, but subsequent and then stuff that I've read, he was a really principled guy. And if he didn't agree with you, he wasn't going to try to work it out with you. He wasn't going to give you a roundabout answer. He was going to say, I don't fucking like it. I'm not doing it. This is stupid and I'm not going to do it. And I think there was an issue with uh, Eddie wanted him to do something or work with somebody. And he said, I'm not doing that. And Eddie said, well, you're not going to be Booker. You're out. And just like that, it happened. I do have the uh, the audio cassette. I just need to find the time to actually transcribe this interview. Now that he's passed, I definitely want to do that also. So the other question I wanted to ask you uh, regarding CWF, you posted pictures apparently of an angle that had taken place where Mike Graham is stretchered out in a match with Harley Race. Can you give us the background on that? Oh, I can. So uh, so this will go back to uh, to my youth and this would have been 1978. I was 14 years old. Full head of hair. Full head of hair, a, a spanking 110 pounds, probably 120 pounds max as I was growing up. And I was part of a trio on Miami Beach with the professor, Pete Letterberg, Pete being uh, probably two to three years older than I was. And then Brian Berkowitz, who was about a year to a year and a half. Brian was, a lot of people will tell you, the best photographer to ever work Miami Beach. People will always say that. And he really was. He was incredible. But we were, three of us were great friends. I was the baby of the group. These were the first guys to get me drunk. It may have even been on this trip. We were on a road trip it once. Was Slurpee, right? It was Slurpee. And then they were <laughs> pouring alcohol and there was booze. How farm. dare you, Pete Letterberg? How dare you? Yeah. Good times, though, man. Being a kid. And, and they used to haze me and razz me being the, the little one. But, uh, but at the same time, what a great experience it was for me. And I loved it. So. We made some road trips to St. Pete, and this was headlined by Mike Graham versus Harley Race for the NWA World's Heavyweight Championship. Now, Pete, Pete wasn't really taking photos at this stage, but Pete was a massive photo collector, and I should say, owns all. he bought all of Brian's negatives. He's bought in five to ten different photographers' negatives. I believe Pete may have the largest wrestling photo collection or negative collection in the entire world. But I had, Jeff, that, that Instamatic that you would buy for $9.99 at a Woolworths, which is exactly where I got it, a 110 Instamatic camera. You would put the flash bulb on top, and it was the bulb that would rotate. It was a square, so you'd get four flashes per bulb. And uh, so Mike Graham did this spot. And, you know, Mike was, uh, you know, I, we've talked about this. Mike gets a lot of shit. It's uh, completely undeserved as far as what happened in CWF, but he didn't get a lot of world title opportunities. You know, Dusty did, uh, but really Mike was on par with Steve Kern and a bunch of other wrestlers. 
But they built this up. It was a big of big. And Mike's time was now. Mike was training special for this match, right? It was a big deal. So we're there. And Harley flips Mike into the ropes. And Mike does the spot where his neck gets wrapped up between the middle and the top rope. And while this has become, I don't want to even say commonplace, you've seen this spot. This was the first time we had ever seen the spot. So it was a really big fucking deal. And Mike was in the ropes for several minutes. And I've always heard that you've got to be really careful when you're uh, releasing the rope, because if it's not done correctly, you will break somebody's neck because of the pressure of the ropes. So Mike's in this rope. He's in these ropes for, I'll say, five minutes without knowing. The locker room spills out. He's finally released. And then immediately he's put onto a gurney and loaded up into a, uh, an ambulance. And the ambulance had actually pulled into the arena. Never saw that before either. Certainly WWE does this all the time. We never saw this, Jeff. This never happened. So you have two major things happening, and that really made an impact. And if you look at the photos, so I did take the photos with this really shitty camera, but I was right there, so the photos came out well. But if you look at the faces of the, the fans, there's a lot of concern. This isn't like now where people are laughing and going, you know, where everybody knows what the deal is. This was everybody in that arena thought that Mike uh, had been seriously injured that night, that this was an unplanned spot. And again, looking at the faces of the concern as they're putting him into the ambulance, there's one guy who just, you know, he looks like he's ready to lose it at any moment. So it was a really big deal. The payoff was Mike took off uh, the next two to three weeks and then said that he was going to be training for a comeback. And with that was going to challenge Harley Race and Harley was going to pay for what he had done to him. As we know, Mike never won the world title, but what it did do is it created a great opportunity to have rematches all throughout the state. When things were being filmed in Florida, they were filmed generally either Tampa, St. Pete, or at the Tampa Sportatorium where they filmed television because you didn't have to do much with the camera crew. They could get into a car and just go and be right there. Not much had to be done. Occasionally, Lakeland would get something. Uh, well, in Sarasota, anywhere that was within driving distance, comfortable driving distance of Tampa. So it was a big deal. And then Mike versus Harley did take place all over the state. And, and they drew some pretty decent houses. But the impact of this was big, again, because, and I don't know where they got this from. I don't know who had done this previously. But uh, in working out this spot and then being able to draw, it was a big deal. And it's similar to when the assassin did the El Santo angle, you know, Austin Idol then did it in Memphis. I don't know a year later. I don't know what the time frame was, but I never knew where Florida got that from or if they had just come up with that. But great stuff. And of all the hundreds of shitty photos I took with that camera, these might just be the best photos that came out. So I'm grateful for that. So, okay, so <clears throat> I have to share a story <clears throat> of something that happened uh, at our house uh, that I, I had texted Barry and told him about this the other day. Yes. So we have a rather large backyard here in Georgia, okay? It's, it's pretty close to being an acre. A lot of trees on it, a lot of oak trees. And of course, uh, when you're uh, in this part of the, uh, you know, you're, you're out, let's just say, 
outside the main city and you have a lot of trees in your backyard, oh, you get the critters berry. And of course, I'm referring to we have squirrels and chipmunks. Okay. So one day I walk out and, you know, we let our dogs out in the backyard off our back deck. And I go out there and I look and, you know, the, the, the squirrels come out up onto our back deck because we have wood for our fireplace and we'll occasionally see them like gnawing on the wood or, hey, you know, what the little bastards do. We have a, a grill on our backyard. They eat the plastic off the wheels. And I don't know if they're taking them up to their nest or, or they just need something to gnaw on or what. But so anyway, and then, of course, I'll open the door and my dogs will be going out and the squirrels will, you know, run down the stairs and my one dog, Molly, will chase after them. And it's a big, big good time for everybody, uh, except maybe the squirrel who's, you know, going through heart palpitations. But anyway, so I walk out onto the back deck the other day and I start seeing all these like, you know, like wood shavings and wood chip. And I'm like, what the hell is this? You know, and it appears to be some kind of like insulation or something. And uh, I'm like, well, so, and so I'm thinking. It's stuff from like our wood pile that's on our back deck. And so my wife comes home and I tell her about it and she goes out and she's like looking and she goes down to the back, uh, down the back steps, goes down to the bottom and I see her looking up and she's like, oh, and I said, what? And she goes, come down here. And I'm like, Ugh. so I go downstairs and I look up to the very top, like right by where the roof of the house is. And I see this hole and she goes. I'm hoping that's not squirrels because that means that squirrels now have access to our house. Barry, have you ever had squirrels in your house? Not, not that I'm aware of. No. Okay. Uh, uh, any, uh, uh, anything else? Chipmunks, raccoons, anything like that? Absolutely. I've heard people remember Mr. Noodles, uh, yes. killed, uh, a chipmunk in the basement. Fucking that's right. I, did. I forgot about yeah. that. Yeah. So anyway, so I'm going, Oh, great. So anyway, so I'm home by my, I don't know, my wife was off doing something and I was there by myself and my wife was making something in the crock pot. She was actually making navy bean soup, just delicious, by the way. Mm. And so uh, I'm hearing this noise. I'm like, what the fuck is that noise? And so I go into the kitchen and what I'm thinking I'm hearing is it's in the crock pot, slow cooking. And I thought maybe what I'm hearing is the beans like popping as they cook. Okay. Because I couldn't figure out what the noise was. I keep hearing it. I go back in to the kitchen area and I hear what appears to be a scratching sound. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Really? And it's right above the ceiling in our bathroom. That's off the kitchen. Okay. And I'm hearing the scratching. It's a pretty loud scratching. So I go and I grab, <laughs> it's always effective. I grab a broom and I take the handle and I start banging on the ceiling you know? <laughs> and I'm figuring I'm going to scare the thing away. And it keeps getting perpetually louder. And as I posted in the group, the only thing that's pissing me off more than Notre Dame choking away that damn Fiesta Bowl victory is the fact that I think I got squirrels in my house. I ended up going up into the fucking attic because we have an attic where you can stand up in. And but there's a partition between the uh, you know where the attic walkway space is and the actual outside of the house. I'm like, oh fuck, this, this sons of bitches have got behind this partition, so now I can't get to them. You know, I wasn't expecting a Chevy Chase from Christmas Vacation moment where they, you know, I look and there's the squirrel, you know, staring me in the face. But so now I'm like, how do I get rid of this thing? I go back downstairs. I'm watching more of the game, getting more and more disappointed. Sons of bitches. And so then I go and they're making this little scratching sound. So I go over and I begin pounding on the wall, like really making a loud noise. Okay. No more noise. I'm like, well. 
I don't know what I did, but uh, apparently something happened. So literally, uh, I called, I texted my landlord, told him about it, and uh, or I should say the homeowner. And he's like, okay, uh, you know, it's the holiday weekend, so I, I can't call anybody until Monday. I'm like, oh, that's fine. I just want to give you a heads up. And it's one of the good things when you're a renter is whenever there's a problem, you call the owner. <laughs> sure. So anyway, so then I don't hear anything for a couple of days. I'm like, well, that's very odd. And the landlord calls me, uh, oh, well, they can't come out to Wednesday. Is that fine with you? I said, absolutely, I'll be here. So at the time we're recording this, uh, it's a Thursday. So yesterday, the guy from, uh, what do you call, pest control, critter control, whatever you want to call it, comes out. And uh, so I take him and I'm giving him the story that I just told you. This is what happened. So some wood shavings, da, 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 da. And he looked up and he sees the hole that my wife had, had you know, seen that she pointed out to me. And, of course, the first thing he says was, uh, it's always got to be in a place it's hard to get to. <laughs> you know, it's, like, it's never someplace easy. So he goes and he goes, son of a bitch. So he has to go and get a 40-foot ladder, 40-foot oh. ladder, Barry. Has to carry it into my backyard, prop it up against the house. He goes up there, and I'm on the back deck, so I'm not that far away from him. And he looks at me and he goes, yeah, that's not squirrels. I said, really? And he goes, no. This is from a wood a woodpecker. And I said, really? And he goes, yeah. He goes, squirrels are not going to be able to chew through solid wood. This is solid wood. Squirrels are going to want to chew through wood that's rotted. This is a solid piece of wood that's up here. And I said, really? I said, so what? I got a woodpecker inside my house? And he goes, well, have you heard anything? I said, no, I haven't heard anything in like four days ever since the, the day I heard it. And he goes, well, so anyway, so. He ends up putting like a, a seal on it. He puts like a piece of, uh, 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 not tinfoil, like aluminum, and he nails it into the house. And so uh, so I, I said, so I, I don't know if I'm going to see you again or not. He goes, well, if you hear something, uh, it'll be for me to come and open this uh, this seal so that, you know, I have to go in and get them. But if you don't hear, so my, my bottom line is I haven't heard anything now in five days, knock on wood. And what I'm hoping is that the woodpecker, after I pounded on the wall, left the premises uh, and that what I don't find is a couple of days from now, there's an odd smell coming out of the wall. <laughs> oh. So, yeah, you don't want that, Barry. So, I don't know. I guess I'm happy that it's not squirrels. Uh, you know, I posted uh, something about it, and uh, our old friend from Wales, John Lee, says, oh, the, the noise was that they were in the walls doing it, uh, you know, and you're going to have babies. And so, oh, let's thank God it's not that. Yeah, absolutely, too. And I, I can tell you, so after... Mr. Noodle, it's interesting you you mentioned that after Mr. Noodles completely destroyed that chipmunk and killed it, within two to three weeks, we were noticing flies in the basement. And now there was no smell. And we had a fairly, you were in the basement. It's a fairly large basement. So no smell whatsoever, but there were flies. I would kill the flies, but new flies would return. I guess I was gone for a couple of days. I don't, maybe it was a fan fest. I get down to the basement. There's a lot of flies. And I open up the door where the HVAC system and the sump pump is at. And there must have been a thousand flies in there. So we knew we had an issue. I tried to kill and do the best I could do to kill the flies. We call in a pest control. And as it turns out, because noodles had killed the chipmunk, these were her babies. And her babies had died. Oh, my. So, just created uh, just heading. So I wasn't aware woodpeckers can get into your house and then live in your house. Uh, well, they uh, 
obviously what I heard was, you know, was the woodpecker. And once I made that poundings, you know, on the wall, apparently right. the woodpecker left because I haven't heard anything since then. It was very odd. So it's funny you mentioned that. The the guy I'm sitting there as he's doing his work and we're kind of shooting the crap and, and stuff like that talking. So he told me we were talking about the different ways people get rid of squirrels because, you know, I, you've seen the videos where uh, people will put feed out for them and then there's like a catapult and it shoots the squirrel and, you know, like, you know, fly, they fly out of the yard. And, you know, I, I don't know, I guess the squirrel's not supposed to come back after that is the theory. But uh, and there are other people that will just flat out try to kill the squirrel. Uh, I'm not looking to do, I wasn't looking to do that. I said, I've been here two and a half years. And I said, other than uh, chewing on the wheels of my grill outside, they really haven't been any big pain in the ass to me. Right. They're, you know, my dog's chasing. It's kind of funny because my dogs never catch them. Uh, you know, so anyway, so when I was telling that story, he said, well, you know, he goes, I had a, uh, a yellow lab and my yellow lab actually caught one of the squirrels and returned with just the, I guess what you would say is the torso of the squirrel and like ah. kind of dropped it. And I looked into why he would have done that. Apparently, according to what this guy says, I have no idea if this is true or not. It's what he told me. Dogs, when they kill a squirrel, will try to eat the brain. Hmm. Okay. It's the kind of intel you don't get it stick to wrestling. I, I'll tell sure. you that. So yeah. they try to eat the brain. Now a cat, if a cat kills a squirrel, according to this guy, the cat will go after the squirrel's liver. I have no idea why. I don't know if there's some sort of protein element that they're going after, but I thought that was kind of odd, Bear. That's very odd, but uh, again, you will not get this on Stick to Wrestling, where they just stick to wrestling. Exactly. You won't get it in any other... No, there's no other podcast right now that's talking about cats going for the livers of squirrels <laughs> and dogs going for the brains. I, I'm, I think Jury service. Say, Jury service. We have say we could safely say, Jeff, we have cornered the fucking market <laughs> with with our topics today. That's that. Okay, so let's as we are down the stretch, we're just <laughs> about to cross the finish line. Last thing we can talk about, Barry, since we haven't finished it, we don't want any spoilers. What do you think so far of the new season of Cobra Kai? So I have first I have mixed feelings with that. I still love the show, but there is it's almost like like they they're trying to the show's becoming pigeonholed in a sense it's almost like they're focusing on what they think works as opposed to maybe the big picture and maybe they're making the characters a little cartoonish johnny in johnny every year since cobra kai has started has been a guy whose life never amounted to anything outside of high school. And he's always been trying to find his way. And he always does something that, uh, you know, you like Johnny cause you know that he's flawed, but he's not a horrible person. But at the same time, he always does something and you go, Johnny, what the fuck are you doing now? Right? Why are you doing that? They're continuing with that. I will say, I do think Daniel LaRusso, from what I've seen thus far, is a little more unlikable this year. I know that there were discussions I had read about giving him more of an edge and that, you know, for a lot of people, there's that conspiracy that he's really the bad guy, <laughs> the way it all played out. I always find that amusing. But there are flaws with the show. At the same time, I still love it. It absolutely brings me right back to the Karate Kid 1984, and I still love it. I'm hopeful. I'm only three episodes down. There are seven left. You are one above me. 
but I do like it. I, I, there's an introduction. We should say, should we talk about the characters introduced? Uh, sure. Okay. So Thomas, this, is, this isn't a spoiler. This is just talking about a new, new characters that are. Yeah. In. And we should say too, that this well. So, and there's a return of a character from one of the movies, which everybody, I think at this point, if you're following, you know, but it is, uh, somebody it's Terry, I believe Terry Silver, right? Terry Silver's yes. last name. He's really good. And this guy is not just a, uh, he's a legitimate martial artist. He's probably in his mid to late sixties, but looks great. He's got, he's very sinister, which he's always been good actor, big fan of this guy, but they did it. Thomas Ian, what? Thomas Ian Griffith. Okay. Yeah. And uh, he was a soap opera actor for years, was in this movie vampires that we recently talked about and talking about great vampire movies. And then most people do know him from the karate kid movies, but he's really good. And then they're introducing a young African-American, uh, and he is, uh, he's a kid. He's small in stature has just moved to a new town and it's almost cliche the 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 kids who have lived there forever, including a young Mr. LaRusso, Daniel's son, they pick on him and there's uh they they tease him. There's online bullying, there's physical bullying where they beat him up. And you gotta feel for the kid because he comes across as this really sweet kid. His older brother is in jail. And Let, let's just say his older brother is someone that you've met before. Yes, that, and that in yes. that way, the show is almost a little incestuous. That everything revolves around a circle of people that are all somehow interconnected, which works though. That's yeah, what we got no, to say. That actually works, and I think you know you had made a reference that I wonder if we're going to see more of this character, whether it's this year or next year. Because again, you and I haven't finished this ep this season, but but I, I look forward to that. I look forward to that character. And it's it, there. There's something about the show that seems to capture the nostalgia of the original Karate Kid, and that's really what I like about this. So, I, while I haven't, I wouldn't say I've been completely in love with the first three episodes. I still really like it a lot, though. So, I, I like the show too. There's uh, one of the things that I really enjoyed about the show when it first came out was the show really primarily dealt with the characters of Johnny and Daniel. Yes. Now what's happening, what's this, the third or fourth season? There's fourth, a lot fourth. more focused on the young kids and, and like, you know, especially like the high school kids. And some of it is borderline ridiculous, you know, because it's becoming very Beverly Hills 90120 or 210, whatever it is, uh, you know, where yeah, th these kids are getting these huge brawls with no consequences, you know, no criminal charges being filed. Oh, no, no. It, it's almost like, you know, like when somebody would attack Dusty, or you want to suppress charges? No, no. I want to settle in right. the ring. You know? <laughs> yeah. That's like, when, no, no, we can't press charges. We got to settle this in the All Valley Tournament. That's, uh, that's kind of ridiculous. But there are occasional moments, and I agree with you, I, Daniel LaRusso and his family are getting a bit more heelish in a lot of things that's that happen in this season, you know? And it's funny because the one character in the family that was kind of kind of a heel already is doing some more baby face kind of stuff as you'll right. see. But there was one segment that I, and this is not a spoiler for Sarah, for anybody that, that I really laughed out loud about. And that is where uh, Daniel is driving one of the kids home one day and he's singing along to uh it's a Christopher cross song. Okay. And so he says, 
So the other character goes, oh, this is a pretty nice song. Who is this? And he goes, oh, it's Christopher Cross. Oh, really? I never heard of him. He goes, oh, yeah, he's got a bunch of great songs. And, like, they kind of leave it at that. Well, so later, the guy sees Johnny. He says, oh, you've been hanging out with Daniel, huh? He says, yeah. He says, he's uh, introduced me to all this new music. He says, uh, you know who he told me about? And, and Johnny goes, who? And he goes, he told me about Peter Cetera. Man, that guy jams. And Johnny <laughs> goes, Peter Cetera, he sucks. <laughs> and they get into this whole conversation about the difference of Peter Cetera, whether he sucks or whether he's really good. And it's fucking hilarious. That's what I love about this show is how, you know, Johnny has this one mindset. And by God, if it's not something he likes already, uh, he doesn't want to know about anything new. And that's very funny. <clears throat> so now, Barry, let's officially cross this finish line. Been a fun show. Uh, you about ready for the go home, my friend? Absolutely. This this has been again. We have covered what what haven't we covered on this episode? Jury yet? service, Cobra Kai, uh, women brawling with scissors. Uh, uh, let's see. We we got Mike Graham being hung by the neck until almost dead. Uh, squirrels. Uh, you know. Well, what more do you want from a, a quality podcast, folks, from the three best friends you didn't know you had? So on that note, I will say for our producer, the sweet man, Luke, Mr. Integrity, we call him now because he did his civic duty. That's Lou's new nickname. And my co-host, Barry Rose, I will say that I am Jeff Bowdrin. Sometimes they call me the booker. And Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry, a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And Lou, if you could, in an almost Christopher Cross or Peter Zatera-like voice, could you do the go home and take us home? 